not have ever noticed that there is this little phrase here. Before Christ commissions his disciples and tells them to go out and to do the work of this church, there's this seemingly incidental phrase, but some were doubtful. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. So the first question we have to ask is, how could they be worshipping him and doubting? Is it that some are worshipping and that others aren't worshipping because they have doubts? I don't think so. Some commentators have found various ways to get around the fact that the disciples are worshipping with still having lingering doubts. And one way they do that is by saying that this is the occasion that Paul talked about where Jesus appeared to the 500 disciples. And he says that during this great commission, there were 500 disciples who joined, who joined the, uh, the 11 disciples uh, for this commission. I don't think that's necessarily the case. My question is, could it be that these 11 disciples, even after seeing all of Jesus' life and all of his ministry, after seeing his crucifixion, after seeing him being raised from the dead, is it possible that those men are still doubtful? The word doubt here in the Greek is not a a hard-hearted doubt that's uh, doubting whether uh, whether or not Christ is God. I don't believe that. The word here is the same word that was used when something was placed on a balance scale and the scales went like this and they wavered, it's, it's a wavering. It's an equivocation. It's a thinking something's true, but then going back, hesitating, is another way that we can translate it. The disciples are hesitant. The, the only other place we see this word being used in the New Testament is when Peter hesitates when he's walking on water out to meet Jesus. And... He's he's walking out, he's doing what he knows is impossible, and Peter has a doubt. He doubts. And he looks around, he sees that he can't do it. He sees that it is impossible. And he falls into the water. He doesn't have faith that Christ can allow him to walk on water. Now we can empathize with this, that these disciples are worshipping and yet doubting. Is there anyone here that during the worship this morning when we were singing praises to God didn't have any doubts? Is there any of us here who, even while I'm speaking, are completely free of doubts? Now, these could be doubts of all kinds of varieties. And seeing the kinds of doubts that the disciples have might clue us in uh, to what our own doubts are as well. Which disciples do you think doubted? Was it Peter? Peter certainly doubted. He denied his Lord, and then he was afraid and running scared from some teenage girl in the courtyard afterwards. Peter, who's mighty and who cuts off the ear of the guard, is then cowering to this teenage girl. So that was Peter then, but then he was reinstated, right? So it can't still be Peter, can it? What about Thomas? Now this is a guy, we have to say that Thomas could still have doubts. After all, if anyone's a doubter, they're now called a doubting Thomas. So if doubting has been named after Thomas, even after Thomas did believe and worship God, could he still have doubts? How about Simon the Zealot? Simon the Zealot, who is a terrorist insurgent of his day, who is trying to overthrow the Roman government. That's, that's what he was. He was a zealot. And he had to believe that Jesus would be the power to throw off the shackles of the tyrannical Roman army. Well, what about when that didn't pan out for Simon? What about when the insurgency was dealt a terrible blow when their general, Jesus Christ, is now going to depart from them? Is that the doubt? Well, this doubt that the disciples had is the same doubt that we have. It's the doubt that 
that comes when rather than looking at the glory of God Almighty, looking at the glory of Jesus Christ, who conquered death, instead we look at ourselves. We look at ourselves as men of no account, as fishermen, as fishermen like they were, or whatever your occupation is, and we see ourselves as not valuable, not able to be used by God. The disciples may have thought at this point that their 15 minutes of fame were over. They may have doubted. And we have to know here that these disciples were ordinary men, ordinary sinful men. And that's the context for Jesus giving the Great Commission. Is it any coincidence that it says that some were doubting and then the commission comes? Well, what is the commission? And in what ways do we try to take this commission out of the life of the church? Jesus is physically leaving earth to reign in heaven here. And he calls the disciples 60 miles to Galilee in order to receive this commission. It says that he met them in Galilee. After they had been in Jerusalem, he instructed them to go to the mountain he had said. And that would have meant at least 60 miles from all maps that I've seen. It was no small journey. And this is the day before planes, trains, and automobiles. And so what does Jesus, Jesus' command begin with? Well, before telling the disciples what they will have to do, what the life of the church will consist of, he tells us who he is. And this should be no surprise to us. This is the way God always operates. He doesn't just tell us what we need to do, but he always starts by saying who he is, what he's like. He always tells us that, and then he tells us what to do. It reminds me of another moment on the mountain when the Ten Commandments are given. And God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And so, you shall have no other gods before me. And then nine other commandments. What we have to do. And he starts that by saying, this is who I am. Well, on this mountain, it's a similar pattern. Jesus begins by saying who he is. And who is he? He is the one who now, thanks to the gift of the Father after his death and resurrection, has inherited all of existence. This is amazing. Think about this. Think about what that means, that Jesus has been the inheritor of every, all time, all space, all matter. Imagine, imagine that. You, you go into a job interview and the boss says, what are your qualifications? Well, I have absolute power and control over all time, space, and matter. Well, you got the job. And, uh, and this is Jesus. He's giving his qualifications to the disciples, you could say. He's telling them who he is, why he has that authority. And isn't it, isn't it fascinating that Jesus can do anything with creation that he wishes? And yet, what does he do? Christ very easily, with this authority, could have exercised this by issuing a, a political reign over the earth. He could have, at this time, started a preaching ministry where, again, you can just imagine the posters for Jesus, and they have like a picture of his hands and his feet with holes in it. Come see the one who conquered death. And he could have done that. He could have preached himself. He could have had angels accompany, accompanying him preaching. He could have brought everyone to obedience through the gospel by... Uh, personal appearances. He could have continued the ministry he had before, only now with even greater power because he was in his resurrection body. He could have teleported from place to place because we know Jesus could have done that. He could have walked through walls. Certainly this would have drawn great crowds and he could have spoken to the multitudes. But he doesn't. He's pleased to have people who are sinful, who are doubting, to carry out his authority. 
He is pleased to do that. And what does he tell his, tell his disciples that they need to do? They need to go out and they need to make disciples of all nations. But this is a, a fearsome command. In these days, travel was not easy. And going out and making disciples of all nations would have been difficult, extremely difficult. This would have taken the disciples out of, out of comf- their relative comfort that they had. This would be like going to a church of Jewish Christians in the nation of Israel right now and saying to those, those Jewish Christians, I want you to uproot and to plant your church in the heart of Tehran, Iran. And I want you to plant that church right down the, the street from Ahmadinejad's palace, this man who has said that he's committed to wiping your nation off the face of the earth. earth. That would be, it would be as dangerous to say, you men, you need to go out and you need to make disciples of all nations. And plus, the Jews, as we're reading in Galatians, didn't think highly of all the nations. They had a nickname for them. We find out in Ephesians 2 that they are called the uncircumcision. What that word uncircumcision means there is foreskins. The Jews used to refer to Gentiles by foreskin because that's what they still had because they were Gentiles. They weren't part of our customs. They weren't part of our our nation, so the disciples would have said. And so this was not uh, the most pleasant command to go out to all the nations. And what are they to do? They're to baptize. They are to baptize. They're to to, uh, bring the sign of those who are part of God's people on these pagan people who have known nothing of the things of God in all the nations. They're to do that. They are to baptize them and to separate them. And we know now, if you know anything about uh, the Muslim world, that baptism is still a great stigma. That, that it is uh, cutting yourself off from your culture, from your religion. That's true with all world religions. For those who become Christians, that just like Varuni did in cutting herself off from, from Buddhism, that it's a major, a major step and it's a, a major thing. This is no uh, empty sign, but it has consequences for the lives of the believers. And this is what the disciples are to do. Also, they're to go to these, these strange cultures, these Gentile cultures, who don't eat the food that, that Jews eat, who don't uh, wear the same clothes that, that Jews wear, who have a completely different life in totally different places. And, they're told they're, and he tells them that they are to teach them to observe everything that he commanded. So baptism isn't the end of the Christian life, we find out here, but baptism is just the beginning. After baptism comes learning the teachings of Jesus Christ learning all the teachings. Think about that with our own day and those who we disciple. Are we willing to teach them all that, all that Christ has commanded? Even tough teachings to, to our day today, divorce. Divorce is a very hard teaching of Jesus Christ. And I'm sure many of us on Thanksgiving, uh, because, as a result of divorce, multiplied our Thanksgiving dinners. Because now there, there are many, many different dinners to attend. Just talking to my coworkers and in my own life, I know that the family has been divided by divorce. Are we willing to, when we baptize, then talk to people who have been divorced, who are struggling in their, ma- their marriages and contemplating divorce? That's just one. What about greed, adultery, loving our enemies, swearing oaths, murder, prayer, fasting, judging others, asking from God, worrying? Christ says that, you, that we are to teach all that he commanded. That is what he says to, to the disciples. And I've been shifting, if you've noticed, into saying we, from looking at the disciples, that this is what they need to do. I've shifted into saying that this is what we need to do. 
And you might say, well, this commission was just for the disciples. This is just for the authorities in the church. This isn't what we, uh, in the chairs, what we need to think about. But this was a one-time event, and now that's the work of the church. And this brings up the real problem here, is that we can look at this great commission and these commands uh, to, to teach and to baptize and to go to all the world, and we can make two mistakes. We can have such a high view of the church, and uh, I'll do this when I say high, we can have such a high view of church that we think only the church can do the work of evangelism, that only the church is qualified. Now, we can invite people to church, and so when we meet people in our workplace, we say, oh, if only Tim Bailey could preach to them. If only Stephen Baker could talk to them about the grace of God. If only they could come and eat dinner at Dave Carell's house. If only the leaders of our church could, could reach out to the people that are in our families and the people that we are friends with. And so what we've done there is we've, we've, washed the respo- we've washed our hands of them and we've put the responsibility on the church leadership. We don't want to see ourselves as having this mandate to go out and to reach people with the gospel of Christ. So we can have too high a view of the church. We could also, and this is especially poisonous, cultivate a pessimistic view of the church where we don't see ourselves as being a part of a body who can really accomplish anything. Look around a moment. Really, look around. Turn around. Look at the faces. It's okay. Everyone will do it at once, so it's fine. Look at all the faces here. Does this look like an army? Does this look like an army? Does this look like something that you want to take up arms with and go fulfill a mission to all nations, to all neighborhoods, to all people? Would you be comfortable doing that? So we, we cultivate a pessimism. In the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis talks about this. And in Screwtape Letters, if you've read this, uh, there's this old demon who's trying to teach this younger demon how he can really mess up the lives of this new believer, how he can mess up everything, derail him. Hopefully, eventually, if this, if this younger demon can succeed, he can, even, he can even cause this new believer to fall away and to go to hell. So that's the goal of the book, is this old sage demon teaching him how to, how to destroy Christians. And how does he, what, what does the, the second chapter say? This is Screwtape, the wise demon talking. One of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as, as we see her, spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is the half-finished building on the new estate. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with a rather oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy which neither of them understands. When he gets to his pew, he looks around and he sees just that selection of neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors, make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces next to him on the pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people the next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. No matter. Your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Think about that. Is that, is that the way that you view the people? We don't even have pews. We have folding chairs. Is that the, view, the way you view the people who are in the folding chairs next to you? 
I don't, I don't think he's here, but Josh Congrove. Josh Congrove. Josh Congrove wears a green blazer. He carries around a copy of the New Testament in Latin. And then you talk to Josh Congrove, and he talks about his pipe that he plays that's made out of PVC pipe that he ordered over the Internet. He might even make a reference or two to Star Trek II Wrath of Khan. This is Josh Congrove. Josh Congrove can't be a warrior. Josh Congrove would never do evangelism. He sits at the end of the pew with his Latin Bible. Josh Congrove. Never, Josh Congrove. Well, let me tell you, Josh Congrove, in being a faithful witness to Varuni in the university, wielded the word of God as a sword, and the demons who danced around Varuni shuddered. Josh Congrove was a warrior. He was faithful at exactly what God had called him to do. He didn't, he didn't just stay on the pew. He took the blazer off. He will from time to time. And Josh was a warrior. That's what we're talking about here. What else can we do? What else do we do? Do we act as judges of the souls of the Gentiles who God has placed in our lives? Do we, before we even think of evangelizing them, of talking to them about Jesus Christ or about bringing them to the church, do we already predetermine that their lives are too messed up to even be worthy of the grace of Christ? Do we already make that judgment? They're living they're living with their girlfriend and like and like they're living with their girlfriend and her kids and the kids are dependent on his financial support and so this whole alliance of them living together it would mess everything up if we had to tell them that God forbids you to live with a woman who's not your wife for you to have sexual relations with someone who is not your wife if i told him that if i told him about the gospel That would mess up his whole life. So I'm going to predetermine that there's no point in doing it. How many times don't we do this with our family members? Certainly, our family members know know us. My family knows me. How are they going to be serving me at Thanksgiving and for me to tell them the hard truths that they need to hear? Were Were any of you in a situation like this with unbelieving relatives at Thanksgiving? You feel like you're ungrateful. They're serving you pumpkin pumpkin pie, and you're trying to think of ways that you can tell them that they need to repent of the lifestyle that they're leading. But you'd be ungrateful. You'd be impolite if you did that, right? What is the loving thing to do? What is the commission-honoring, God-honoring, Christ-honoring thing to do? If we are on a mission to show Not just those in the church, certainly to show those in the church the love of Christ, but not just for ourselves, but to bring others into the church. If that is our mission, to show the love of Jesus, we need to be willing to say and do the things that Jesus did. We need to be willing to not just let our actions speak. This is is something that can also be a tendency of ours. Well, what I'm going to do is in my workplace, I will create the best example of Jesus Christ that I can. Because if I create a great example, you know the old expression, uh, preach Christ at all times and whenever necessary, use words. And we use phrases like that to allow us never to have to use words at any time whatsoever. 
See how we, we can do that? Um, we say, oh, well, I'm just going to be a light. I'm just going to let my, let my witness. And what witness generally boils down to then is that we're moral people, that we're good people. But what do good people do when they know that their fa- friends and family members are dangling over the flames of hell because they are not submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ? What is the loving thing to do? Do you leave someone inside a, a burning building uh, because they're, they're blind and deaf and don't know what's going on? They have no sense of smell. Do you leave someone in that building to burn because you might mess up their lives? No. No, that's foolishness. We tell them. The loving response to do is to give sight to the blind. And how do we do that? That's where it comes back to teaching them to observe all that I commanded. It's bringing them into the church. It's not being lone rangers who are cut off from the church, but it's, it's having a high view of the church. Not so high that you think that the church is some uh, nebulous thing that is comprised of only the services that happen here, but that is comprised of all of you, all of us, throughout the week. How, how do we have the power to do this? Some of us may be convicted. I know even speaking this, I myself am convicted at lost opportunities, at... Uh, my way that I've wavered, that I have been hesitant in speaking to my family members about, about Jesus Christ at my excuses that I make for not doing so? Well, where do we go? Well, the beautiful thing about the Great Commission is, and, I, and you need to notice this, is that Jesus Christ starts this Great Commission by saying, I have all authority. I have the right. No one can say you have no right to tell me what to believe because I have the right over all creation. He starts with who he is, and he ends with who he is. He says, and, and lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's, that's what all of this is rooted in. Do you believe that Christ goes with you to the classroom? Do you believe that Christ goes with you to, I don't know, where are you going to go? Denny's? Certainly Christ would never sit in a booth at Denny's. King of the universe wouldn't be caught dead there. Do you believe that he is with you? Do you believe that he is with us in this place? That's, that's what the Advent liturgy is about, right? Especially these early ones is saying that Emmanuel, God with us, would dwell with us. This is the story of the gospel is that God is pleased to dwell with sinful people. And we are able to do the work of the church because Emmanuel is still dwelling with us. And the, the disciples got this in, in, obviously, a huge and dramatic form at Pentecost in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. But Christ still is with us. Christ still is dwell, dwelling with us, empowering, empowering us to fulfill this great commission. And the good news is that we don't have to put our, place, put our hope and our faith in IU's football team or the Steelers if Brandon and Lauren were here. Uh, that we don't need to put our hope and our faith in men, in sinful men, but that we have God, that he's not a general who stands away from his troops, but who dwells with his troops, that he, he truly does dwell with us. And when we come to the Lord's table, we are also empowered to do that because we see that we are reminded that he didn't even spare his own flesh and blood as rations for his troops. But... He was, he was pleased to give them to us to empower us for what we need to do. 
And so my prayer for all of us today is that we don't omit this commission, that we we realize that this is the work of us as a church. It may not be for all of us to all nations as it is for the Olsons. Some of you should very much consider overseas missions work. But what about the neighborhoods, to all neighborhoods? What about to all cubicles at your office? What about to all uncles, aunts? We have more holidays coming up. We have more opportunities to speak to people of the Lord. Jesus Christ is on so many lips at the time of Christmas, and yet our society is plunged in ignorance as to his power, as to his authority, as to the dominion he possesses after being the conqueror of death. He is God coming in the flesh to dwell with us. Do they know that? Do they know what that means for their lives? Many of them don't. Many don't. Some of you here, this isn't your commission because you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ. Some of you here have not put your hope and your faith in him as your Savior, and so you're not even on this mission yet. But I speak as the church and as God himself that you need to join the church by submitting yourself to the Son. You need to kiss the Son lest he become angry. You need to turn over your life to him. You need to join in this church. And yeah, look around. We're not the most strong army. We're not the most uh, highly popular, highly skilled. Uh, We're not the coolest crowd. There are churches you could go to in town that have a much cooler crowd than this, I'm sure. But you need to turn over your lives to Christ, even today. And again, the beauty is that he comes to us. He doesn't wait for us to come to him. And so let's offer up praises to him for this truth. Heavenly Father, I thank you and I praise you for your gospel.